Um, the reading this morning is from the book of John, and it's chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. And if you're using the church Bible, it is 1083. The vine and the branches. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. This is God's word. Well, it's always interesting this time of year to read what the newspapers say about the events of the past year. Uh, inevitably, it will include um, obituaries of public figures who have, who have died during the past year. And um, in 2011, there were notorious ones like Bin Laden, Colonel Gaddafi. And then there were others who contributed positively to our world. One of the um, people whose death had quite a big impact on many people was um, this guy coming up uh, here on the, uh, the screen. Um, here he comes. It's nearly there. No, not the fruit. No, no. Here it is. Anybody know who that is? Steve Jobs, that's right. Founder of Apple, responsible for some of these amazing technological inventions like the, the iMac and the iPod, which I'm sure some of you may have received as Christmas presents if you, were, if you had generous people. Um, diagnosed with cancer in 2003. And that gave, in some ways, a healthy attitude towards death. This is something that uh, he said. He said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I'll ever, I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, 
or fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Now, wise words in many ways, but um, although it said it allowed him to make the biggest choices in life, did he actually make the biggest choice? I mean, some of the advice that he gave to people was this. He said, your time is limited, so don't waste it living in someone else's life. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Now, you may have the views on what do you think uh, that advice or how helpful that is, but this morning we're going to be looking at somebody who also knew he was going to die and somebody who wanted to leave some wise advice for his followers. That person, of course, was uh, Jesus Christ and his advice was very different. And you may think, well, why are we looking at this today? After all, we've only just been celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Why are we now looking at his death? Well, as we come into a new year, I think it's good to reset our priorities, to clear out all that uh, junk mail that's cluttering up our lives, and to focus on, as uh, Grant was saying earlier on, just to what is the most important thing in our lives as we face the year ahead, with all the challenges that it will bring to us as individuals and to us as a church. The message of Jesus from this passage is that, in many ways, very simple. If you haven't got your Bibles open, turn back there to, to John 15. It's mentioned nine times in the passage. And it's this, it's be fruitful. Be fruitful. But it's not just a message of what to do, but it's also an encouragement about the resources that we are given to be able to lead fruitful lives. Be fruitful, Jesus says, by remaining in me. Be fruitful by remaining in Jesus Christ. Well, let's just start by looking at the command to be fruitful. What does it actually mean to be fruitful? Because um, the, the, the metaphor fruit is often used in the Bible. Um, you may be thinking of Galatians uh, 5, describing the effect of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how he produces the fruit. Um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're meant as Christians to demonstrate those qualities and it would be very easy to preach a sermon this morning on those fruits of the Spirit. But I think this particular passage has got a slightly different focus. I think if we look at the context of it, if we look at what Jesus says here, I think the focus is more on mission. Have a look at verse 16 there if you've got your Bibles open. There it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now what we see there is there's a choosing and there's a commissioning. If we're Christians here this morning, um, it's because God has chosen us. We are chosen to be his children. We've been adopted into his family. And that is an incredible privilege and one we must never forget. It's when we lose sight of that and start to think that somehow, you know, God owes us one, that we somehow think we have a right to expect more comfort and less pain. That is when our faith will start to become cold. We are chosen. It's a privileged position. But we're not meant just to sit around and be idle and say, thank you, God, for choosing me. We're meant to go out. We're commissioned for a task. We're appointed to go and bear fruit. 
Go where, you might ask? Well, turn over the page to chapter 17. And here you see Jesus praying to the Father. And he's praying for protection for his disciples. Why, you might ask? Well, have a look at verse 18. He's saying, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He's sending his disciples into the world. He's sending us into the world. Now, you might say, well, surely we're already in the world. This is where we live. This is, this is our um, place we, we inhabit. How can I go into a place where I am already? Well, the way in which Jesus uses this word world is to distinguish between those people who belong to him, that community of believers, and those who don't yet know him as God, as their personal saviour, those who follow their natural human instincts. So to go into the world is to go and make the love of Jesus known to those who don't yet know it. So they themselves may be able to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Well, okay, well, how, how do we do that? Well, the great thing about this passage is that even more times than the word fruit is mentioned, it's the word fruit, uh, remain mentioned, remain. Jesus doesn't just send his disciples uh, and say, go and bear fruit. Do it yourselves. He gives us the resources to do that. Be fruitful by remaining in Christ. Now, this passage starts off with the words, I am the true vine. You might think that's a bit of a strange thing to say. I'm the true vine. What is he getting at here? But this, this image of the vine is quite an important image and symbol for Israel. The Old Testament often compares Israel with a vine. Have a look, if you've got Bibles handy there, back to, to the Psalms. Have a look at Psalm 80. You've got a church Bible, it's on page 593. Have a look at verse 8 of Psalm 80. What it says here. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. I'll just keep that page open for a moment. So all we see here is God tending and caring for Israel like a gardener tends and cares for his precious vines, preparing the ideal conditions for it to thrive and produce a good vintage. And yet, there are many descriptions in the Old Testament of Israel's failure, her disobedience, a lack of productivity, and consequently a loss of privilege. God says to Israel at the beginning of Jeremiah, he says, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then? Did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? Israel turned against God. And so if we look again at Psalm 80, we see the consequence for Israel. There is abandonment, there is destruction. But in the midst of that, there is also a plea for mercy. Look at verse 16 there. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we 
may be saved. It's a plea for mercy. It's a plea for revival. A plea that God will not turn away from them, but that he will save them. That he will breathe new life into them. And he will do that through someone called the Son of Man, who is at the right hand of God. So going back to John 15, when Jesus comes and says these words, I am the true vine, it is full of meaning. It's an incredible claim. Israel may continue to call itself the vine, but he's saying, I am the true vine through whom God will now pour out his blessing on the whole world. I'm the one who's come to save you, the one you called out for. Israel has rejected God, been rejected. She's been cut down and burned with fire, but the real people of God are those who are the branches of the true vine, who rely on Jesus for life and sustenance. He's the one who can make us right with God, which is the most important thing that we can hope for. He's the one who can forgive our sins. He's the one who can give us eternal life. And if you are somebody here this morning who hasn't yet asked Jesus to be your saviour, to be your Lord, then what better way of starting off the new year than doing that? To turn from a life centred on yourself to a life centred on Jesus Christ. And if you made that decision already, then why not follow his call to be baptised? To demonstrate visually what has happened within you already. Again, amazing thing to start the year off with a decision to, to do that. But what if we are already Christians? What about this command to, to go and be fruitful? What are the resources that are mentioned here? Have a look at verse 4. Look what Jesus says here in chapter 15. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if the the image of branches relying on the vine to bear fruit doesn't resonate with you, then maybe I'll give you another one. Um, This is a little present that uh, one of our boys had for... uh, for Christmas, actually all of them had. I was quite jealous myself. I quite fancied one of these. Don't know whether any of you have uh, got one. It's a little um, remote-controlled helicopter. I've been told by my boys, please don't try and fly that uh, during the service. But um, I think I might give it a bit of a go. Let's just see what happens. I'll start from the floor here. And let's see if any, anything goes on here. Here we go. Ooh, look at that, eh? See if I can land it on the table. I think we'll leave it there, actually. (laughs) Now, sooner or later, even if I'd managed to fly it around the whole church, sooner or later, the batteries would run out and that helicopter would be left wherever it happened to be at that point, hopefully still in one piece. And in many ways, that is what we are like, isn't it? We come to church on a Sunday, we recharge, the batteries are filled up, and we go out, we're excited, but by Tuesday afternoon... Or for some people, Monday morning at 9 o'clock, the batteries are flat. We've lost the excitement, we've lost the joy, the pressures of the world have drained us, and we're struggling to retain our own faith, let alone bear fruit. How can we be constantly charged? How can we run not on long life batteries, how can we run on eternal life batteries? Batteries that never run down. 
Well, there are three things in this passage that Jesus tells tells us that will enable us to remain in him. That will enable us to be constantly charged, constantly able to to bear fruit. And these three things are all linked. We can't just pick one of them and say, I'll have that one, thank you very much, but uh, I'll leave the other two. We have all three, but we have none. They are his words, his power, and his love. And they all come from here, this passage here. First of all, his words. Rely on his words. Verse 7 says, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. The way we know Jesus and remain in him is to allow his words to dwell in us. Now, his words that we find in the Bible are, are what define him. Um, we can't get to know Jesus without knowing his words. And we can't expect his words to remain in us unless we open up his word, the Bible, unless we read it. Now, in some ways, it's great being in the age we're in, uh, technologically speaking. Um, we've got all the benefits at our fingertips. Some of you, I can see, you've probably got your Bibles open on your mobile phones or your iPods, um, iPads for those that are lucky. Um, others have got their mobile phones open and are probably just texting your mates but um, I presume that you, you're reading the Bible on them but you can go into to Bible software now these days can't you and um, type in for example I can type in the word fruit in the Bible Gateway if you go to the Bible Gateway website it's a great resource type in fruit and you'll come up with 197 verses which have fruit in it and that's a great thing to be able to do isn't it but the disadvantage is that you can slip into thinking, well, whenever I need the words of Jesus, I know where to go. I can go there and get them when I need them. But we're not meant to treat the words of Jesus as a sort of reference tool that we pull out whenever we need them. He says, let my words remain in you, dwell in you, be a permanent part of you. You may recall when Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days and nights. What did he do when the devil tempted him? He recalled words of scripture. What will we do when we are tempted? When somebody starts hurling abuse at us, will we say, well, excuse me a minute, let me just pull up Bible Gateway and see what I should do here. Should I punch you back or should I forgive you? Um, no, we need to be able to respond immediately. Because his words are in our heart. They're a part of us. It becomes second nature to us. How many words of Jesus can we recall? How many of them are lodged in our hearts so that we can recall them maybe when we need reassurance? Or maybe when we need to reassure others? Reading the word of God is preparing us for eternity. And compared to this valuable activity, how many of the things we do are actually fairly futile? I'm sure many of you will read... um, we we'll use daily Bible reading notes, which are a great resource, and I'm sure many of you actually, though, may be a little bit tired of them. Maybe you're doing it just out of a sense of duty, get them out of the way quickly in the morning and then move on to other things. You don't have to use the same notes. There are a huge number of different notes out there. Maybe change what you do in the morning. But sake yourself with the Word of God. Maybe listen to the Word being actually spoken on these audio um, Bibles you can get these days. Hey, listen, on the train into work, on the bus into school, put your headphones on. If you want to pretend you're listening to Rihanna, that's fine, but uh, listen maybe to the Word of God. But also memorise Scripture. I'm rubbish at memorising Scripture. Um, the same way that if I was acting in a drama, I'd be rubbish at remembering the lines. But I do think it's important, and maybe this year we need to memorise 
some key verses from Scripture. Maybe we should have a go at that. Um, Maybe let's just test each other, see how you're doing in the year ahead. I wonder if much of our lack of consistent, credible witness, much sometimes our lack of joy in our Christian faith is because we don't spend enough time with the Word of God. Remaining in Christ remains relying on his words. Secondly, rely on his power. Verse 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a pretty strong stuff, isn't it? But then look at verse 7, because now he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can do anything. But this is where we see the link between these things. If his words remain in us, his power will be in us. We can't have power without the words. Why not? Because when Jesus answers our prayers, it's for the sake of his Father's glory, it says there. This is to my Father's glory. He's not like some sort of genie in a lamp that we say, come down now, I need a... A new, um, new iPod, God, can you send me an iPod? Just conjure it up out of, new, out of air. He's saying, if you know my words, if you know me, then you will know what is important to me. You will have the same goal as I, which is to bring glory to our Father in heaven. And together, we can do that. And each time you ask God for something, maybe ask yourself the question, how will this bring glory to God? And maybe be prepared to, to say, actually, God, if there is a way in which you will be more glorified, then we'll just ignore my request. I'll just put it to one side and just answer it in the way which will most glorify you. Sometimes I think we're so fixed on what we think we need that we, we can't believe that God could answer our prayers in any other way. The key thing is that we need to rely on his power, And not to be discouraged when our efforts, coming back to to bearing fruit, are not bearing fruit. Let's pray for that fruit. And again, that's another New Year's resolution for you, because the power that comes from prayer, doesn't it, it says here, ask whatever you want, and it'll be given you. We have to ask for it. I wonder how much time we spend actually asking for things in prayer, as opposed to just doing stuff. You know, we work hard at Christian ministry. I know many of you are out there are spending a lot of time working hard in Christian ministry. But I wonder if we were to add up all the regular weekly activities, all the, the one-off events, all the time spent preparing for them, all the time spent doing them, and then compared that with the time spent actually praying for them, I wonder what that proportion would be. I've got a couple of minutes here, but useful, I think, just at this point, just maybe just to share with the person sitting next to you some way in which God has answered your prayers over the last year. How has God answered your prayers over the last year? And how would you like him to answer your prayers over the coming year? If you're a visitor, maybe you don't even believe in God here this morning, maybe just imagine for a moment the were a God, then how would you like him to answer a prayer to him? Just to spend a couple of minutes doing that with the person next to you. If you prefer, just to sit in quiet, that's fine as well. But how has God answered your prayers? How is he showing you his power? And how would you like him to answer your prayers in the year ahead? Just spend a couple of minutes doing that.
Okay, if you'd like to maybe continue with that after the service, over a cup of coffee. Great thing to do, useful way of spending your time. We've looked at two resources so far for remaining in Christ, relying on his words, relying on his power. Thirdly, if we're going to be fruitful, we need to rely on his love. Verse 9 says there, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. It's amazing to think that the same love that uh, the Father showed to the Son, we are able to enjoy ourselves. We're able to remain in that love. The love that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the love of the gardener who loves his vines, who, who loves the branches. It's a love that wants the best for us. If you watch the um, Christmas special of Downton Abbey, I know as few of you did, don't need to be embarrassed. Here we have Mary, Sir Richard, and Matthew. And we were all pleased, weren't we, that uh, Mary finally finished it with Sir Richard. Because it wasn't a relationship of love, was it? Um, in case you don't know, Downton Abbey... Um, Mary had made some mistakes in the past and um, Sir Richard, rather than actually forgiving her for them and loving her, basically used them to, to his advantage, used them to exert control over Mary. They were, in a, they were engaged they were in a relationship, but it wasn't a relationship of love. So Mary gets it together with Matthew and Matthew's happy to forgive her for what's gone on in the past. And um, who knows what's going to happen in the next series. But um, the biggest challenge to our loving others, though, is whether we are able to deny ourselves, to, to put behind us what we want for ourselves and put others first. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And then he goes on to say, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The greatest act of love that God showed towards us was to send his son to die for us. To take the punishment for for sin that that we deserved so that we might become a child of God. And if we know that to be true for us, if we're secure in that love, if we know how unconditional that love is, that he did that for us, we won't feel that somehow we need to make ourselves popular, that somehow... We will need to prove ourselves to others. We will be able to love others as Jesus has loved us. If we're we're serving, if we're helping others and our hearts are not in it, if we're doing that out of a sense of duty, if maybe we're doing it just to make ourselves feel good, then we won't be fruitful. Rely on his love. But if we look at how these three things fit together, his words, his power, his love, then we do see that they are all interlinked. Have a look at verse 16 again. When Jesus says, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And then he says this, this is my command, love each other. So there we have those three resources. If we ignore his words, we won't know what to do, we won't know what to pray for. If we ignore his offer to give us whatever we ask for, 
If we ignore that, we won't see his power. If we ignore his command to love each other, then we won't be fruitful. His words, his power are bound up in love. And the greatest impact we can have as a church on the world around us as we go into the world is to show them the love that we have for each other, the love that is based on the love that God has shown towards us. As we we come to to a finish then, if you don't yet know the love of God for yourself, ask yourself, what is is my goal in life? Who am I trying to, to please? I do hope you will come to know the love that God has for you and find security in that, find hope in that. Jesus said, go and be fruitful. If you do know his love, are you keeping it to yourself? We cannot stay in our our cosy homes. Our lives do need to cross over with those who don't yet know that love of Christ. They need to see us as a community of love. Go, Jesus says. Go, but don't rely on your own clever words. Don't rely on your techniques. Go and rely on his words, his power, and his love. We are not the vine. We are the branches. Jesus is the vine, and the fruit ultimately will come from the vine if we remain in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So if you want to be fruitful in 2012, how can you rely more on his words? How can you rely more on his power? And how can you rely more on his love?